welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey, welcome to Church at the Well. I thought today we could play a little game called What Should You Do? I'm going to give you a few scenarios. You just think through and say, oh, what should I do? What should somebody do in this situation? You have a side hustle business and it just blew up this year in the best of ways. And you made thousands of dollars more than you thought you would. And uh, in cash, people paid you. And now it's tax season. And you're thinking, man, if I declare this income, I'm going to have to give a chunk of it back to the government who hasn't done anything for me. Uh, or you just think, I really needed it this year. Like, I, I, I can't part with this. And, and I've, all this is already accounted for. What should you do? Or how about this? Your brother's chore on Saturdays is to mow the lawn. And he was supposed to do it Saturday morning. But Saturday afternoon rolls around and he hasn't done it yet. He procrastinated. And he's about to go do it. And one of his friends comes by on the bike and says, hey, let's go. Let's go uh, biking. Let's go to the park. And he turns to you and says, oh, I really want to go. Can you mow the lawn for me? What should you do? What should you do? It's 3 p.m. On a Sunday afternoon, you are up north at a friend's cottage. The sun is out. It's one of those glorious summer, Canadian summer afternoons. You got a cold drink in your hand. You're dangling your feet in the water and life is good. And then you remember there's a prayer meeting that you were planning on going to in the city at seven o'clock. But if you're going to get there on time, you got to start packing up now. What should you do? What should you do? It's Valentine's Day. And uh, you had plans to go out for dinner with your fiance. You're getting married soon. This is is a special Valentine's Day. You're anticipating your wedding. And at four o'clock, you get a call from one of your vendors saying, hey, I got courtside seats for the Raptors game tonight. What should you do? What should you do? You go on vacation uh, in, in a new city and you land there in the plane. It's, it's kind of evening and, and darkness is settling in. You get to your rental car and you're on your way to hotel and the directions take you down kind of a, a pretty lonely, deserted street. And on the side of the road as you're driving, you see someone who's pulled over, a little bit of smoke coming out of their car, and they're waving you down because they need help. What should you do? What should you do? You're in a Google classroom, like online class uh, with your uh, class, your teacher's teaching. And while your teacher's teaching, you get a text from one of your friends on the side say, hey, join this game. They want you to play a video game with them on the phone. And you already know what the teacher's saying. You got it. You're doing really well in this class. What should you do? What should you do? You're being asked to reduce the size of your team at work. It's been a tough year, and so there needs to be some cutbacks. Now, the easiest person to let go on your team would be the person who has not been performing well. This person doesn't seem to gel well with the rest of the team. And so if you let them go, nobody would uh, bat an eye. Your boss and your team would support that decision. And yet, you know, this person really needs the paycheck. And you know, things at home for them have not been good this year. What should you do? Now, there's so many different ways we could answer those questions and the many other decisions we have to make in life, but let me oversimplify it for us for a moment and say we probably come at this from a few different ways. Some of us are rule followers. Oh, you got to do what's right. That's what the rules are there for. So you don't have to think about it. You just follow it. Here's what's right. Here's what you need to do. Here's what the rule says. Here's what the law says. And there's some of us who are the rule benders. Yes, the rules are good, but they're there. You need to adapt them. Every situation is different. The rules need to, you know, fit the context that you're in. There's the rule benders. 
Now then there's some of us who are the rule breakers, which is basically saying, I don't need the rules. I know what I'm doing. Like, trust me, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. The rule breakers. And then there are the rule feelers, which is, I'm just going to go with my gut. You know, I just feel I got a gut on this one. I know this is what the rule says, but I'm going to trust my gut. Now, even as I'm describing those scenarios, some of you are making faces <laughs> at the different types of people, but we're all probably in some uh, fit into one of those categories. Now, take the Valentine's Day Raptors courtside tickets uh, scenario. If you're a rule follower, you're like, sorry, I got plans tonight with my fiance. Can't take the tickets. Thanks, but no thanks. That's the rule followers. Hey, that's what's right. That's what you should do. You know what? You already had plans. That was made before. This comes after. Now, the rule benders might say, oh, wow, what a great opportunity. And it's Valentine's Day. There's a win-win here, right? We could all get what we want. And so I'm going to just craft the situation to what I need it to be. There's the rule breakers who are like, great, I'll take the tickets. Honey, uh, we got to move our Valentine's Day dinner to tomorrow night. That's the rule breakers. Hey, don't worry. Rules can be broken. And then there's the rule feelers, which is like, oh, man, I just feel like this is right. I mean, I got a phone call at 4 p.m. on Valentine's Day for courtside seats. This just feels right. Now, that was an actual scenario of my life a month before Jen and I got married. It's Valentine's Day. I get a call from one of my suppliers saying, VJ, I got amazing seats for the Raptor game. Now, I am, truth be told, a rule bender. So I thought, this is a win-win. I called Jen, and at that time, she says, yeah, sure, let's go. Now, years later, she told me, that was a bad move. I did not want to go to the Raptors game. So, you know, she was not comfortable enough with me at that point to tell me the truth. Now she is. But we have both grown tremendously in these years because I'll say, I, I know I would not do that anymore. I would not do that. And she says, I would totally go to the Raptors game. You shouldn't turn down this ticket. So we've grow, both grown tremendously in that. But listen, there's no, these aren't just some of the little decisions about tickets or mowing the lawn. All of the decisions we have to face in life, many really important, many weighing on us, many implications to the thousands of decisions we need to make, and the rules and the laws that are in place in our land and in our workplace and our school and in our family and our home and how it all works are all part of that. And here's the thing. There is so much conflict that is created by the different ways that we look at the choices and the decisions we make between the rule followers and the rule benders and the rule breakers and the rule feelers. Our differences in this make a significant amount of conflict in our marriages, in our homes, in our communities, in our countries, in our schools, and in our workplaces. Even the world we're living right now is, is constantly the laws and the rules are changing. And we are having a lot of conflict over these things, in part, um, not just because of our personalities and the way we might lean towards rule breakers, rule benders, and whatever, but because every decision in some way or another, directly or indirectly, involves people. Right? All of our decisions affect ourselves, the people close to us, the people we go to school with, the people who lead us, the people we work with, the people we're connected to in our families, in our marriages. And so there's so much riding on this question of how we make decisions and how we regard the rules and the laws and how that affects the people in our lives and ourselves included. Well, we're in this series called Revolutionary. Jesus, the revolutionary, bringing an entirely new way to see ourselves and the world in a sense in his life and in his death and his resurrection and his teaching, not only 2,000 years ago, but still now turning the world upside down in the most beautiful way. 
And one of the titles that Jesus' followers had for him was rabbi, which meant teacher. Jesus, as a rabbi, was constantly teaching them how to relate to God, how to relate to themselves, how to relate to the world around them. And what did God require of them? What were God's laws? What were the rules of the land around them? And how they were meant to live and respond in those things. And Jesus' world was one that was just like ours, very conflicted over the rules, over the laws. And I want you to listen to this passage as, as Jesus, a lot of his teaching actually addressed the rules of the laws. How do we relate? And in this passage we're going to listen to today and we're going to camp out in today, Jesus, not only 2,000 years ago, but t- today gives us such a, a fresh way to all of the rule followers and the rule benders and the rule breakers and the rule feelers, both then and now, an entirely different way to make decisions. And so I want you to read as this passage, or listen as this passage is read for us today. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is such a fascinating conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. And just a bit of context so we can understand what he's saying and why it matters so much to us. Because a lot of the, the words and things may seem a bit distant from our reality, but they are so relevant to us. Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders about the Sabbath. That his disciples were doing something, breaking heads of grain, or they probably, probably the better translation was like ears of corn. They were picking corn and like husking it and eating it. And the religious leaders say, hey, that's not, you're, that's not allowed. It's the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, was one, in day, one day in seven, but one of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Laws that God gave his people was, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, you shall do no work. It is a holy day. The idea of the Sabbath law was God had rescued um, the children of Israel from being slaves, and then as they had come out of a place in the life where they had worked 24-7, he said, no, now with me, you're going to do things differently. I want you to stop one in every seven and not work. 
Um, and he said it was a holy day that the Ten Commandments say the Sabbath is a holy day, which just means it's a day not like any other day. And so on that day, they were not supposed to work. Now, here's what you need to know about the Jewish tradition and the laws around Sabbath. Of course, there's all kinds of questions. Well, what is work? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to sweep the floor? Am I allowed to make food? Am I allowed to clean my yard? Am I allowed to like pull a weed that's standing in, you know, in my way or something like that? You know, I'm allowed to vacuum because my mom says I have to vacuum. And so the Jewish tradition, the law had 39 other laws that were like a fence, they called it actually, around this one law, the Sabbath. So to make sure we don't break that, because that's really important. That's one of the Ten Commandments. We cannot break God's laws. Let's put these other laws that are fences around to make sure that you don't do those things so you don't break the one of the Ten Commandments. But in addition to those 39 laws, they had what came to be known as the Mishnaic or the Mishnah tradition, which was the oral tradition of the teachers. Most people didn't read or write then. So the laws and the how do you live and what are we supposed to do was passed on through um, verbal communication. And part of the Mishnah tradition had even more laws around the Sabbath. And so this was a very heavily guarded, um, heavily regulated thing. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were doing something that was breaking the Sabbath. Now, this wasn't just, oh, here's some guys doing something they shouldn't do. Jesus was growing in popularity and influence as a rabbi, a religious teacher. The rabbis were the ones who were meant to interpret the law for the people. And now the religious leaders around him who are saying, well, we don't know where you're coming from. Who gives you the authority to do this? And now you, who's growing in influence and popularity, and people are looking at you as to how to relate to God and how to relate to all of our laws, and you are letting your followers, your disciples, break the Sabbath. That is not okay. And so they bring this issue up with Jesus and saying, what, what's, how can you do this? And Jesus gives a response that is brilliant. It's not only addressing their issues and their questions over why it's okay for his disciples to do what they're doing, but it actually opens the door for us, for all of us rule followers, rule benders, rule breakers, rule feelers, to have an entirely new way to think about any rule and any law and how we relate to God and ourselves and others. The first way Jesus addresses this, he gives them four reasons. And if we're not understanding what's going on, we'll just think, oh, he's just making an argument back to them. But Jesus was actually explaining to them, hey, here's how I relate to this law and every law. And he says four things. First, he says in response, he says, well, um, haven't you heard about David, King David, who when he was on the run from Saul, went into the temple and the priests gave him, or the tabernacle, and the priests gave him the bread that was only for the priests to eat. Now, you don't need to know all of the tradition of Israel's history, except to know that David was their most um, cherished political leader. He, the, the kingdom of Israel was at its zenith under his care. And so he was revered. And they thought the future king is going to come from the line of David. David goes into this uh, tabernacle at this time when he was on the run from the king who was king, but who was going to leave. David had already been anointed king. The priests gave him the bread because they knew, hey, you're going to be the king. And Jesus, in a sense, is comparing himself to Israel's greatest leader and said, oh yeah, remember that other guy who was your greatest king, who was going to be king? I'm like him. He was comparing himself to David by saying, hey, David did that. I can do it too. I am just like Israel's greatest political leader. And then he goes on and he says, and also don't the priests who work in the temple on the Sabbath violate the Sabbath because they're working, but it's okay because they're priests. 
that was not just a clever argument. He's saying, I'm not only like David. I'm not comparing myself only to David, your greatest political leader. I'm comparing myself to one of the priests. I'm a religious leader. Too. I have religious authority, not just political authority to do this. David and the priest. Then he says, by the way, something greater than the temple is here. And in their mind, there was nothing greater than the temple. The temple was the last visible symbol of their, it was not just a religious symbol, it was a political symbol. In a, in a time and in a place in the city where that was ruled by the Roman Empire, the temple stood as this constant reminder saying, no, we are the people of God. We have religious and political independence and ultimately God is going to set us free. And as long as the stem, temple stands, we have hope. The temple was also, in a sense, the place that where all of the law came from. It was where the most accomplished religious leaders and teachers of the law um, lived and did their ministry. You couldn't build temples anywhere else in Israel. You had to go to the temple once a year. And so it was the center place of the most holy place, in a sense. And that's why you'll read in Jesus' biographies, his criticism of the temple a lot was what got him in such trouble. And here he's saying, you know what? Something, not someone, it's interesting. Other times he says someone greater than the temple. This time he says something greater than the temple. In other words, my way, my kingdom, my interpretation of the laws is greater than your temple. To which all of these things he's saying would have been mounting their frustration with him. Which at the end of it, then he says, and by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> I am the Lord of this laws. I don't obey those laws. The laws obey me. <laughs> Which is his way of saying, I'm not a rule breaker or a rule bender or a rule follower or a rule feeler. I am the rule maker. I am Lord over this, which actually helps us make sense of what otherwise is a very strange response to them. You know what they say in the end? It says, they decided they needed to kill him. Why? Because he broke the Sabbath? Because his disciples, you know, pulled some corn and ate it on the Sabbath? No, because of what his response was. He says, you know why it's okay for them to do this? Leave them alone. You know why? Because I am just like David. I am just like a priest. I'm greater than the temple and I am Lord over this law, which was crazy for him to say. It was like he was saying, the Sabbath is my law. I'm Lord over it. You know who said the Sabbath was mine? God's. If you look back in, in the Old Testament scriptures, one of the times God says, this is my Sabbath. Don't break my Sabbath, my law. And Jesus in this moment is saying, yeah, it's my Sabbath too. Making himself not only equal or greater than David, not only equal or greater than the priests, not only greater than the temple, but equal with God. Which is, Got, which was got him killed. But it is the starting point for us to say, no, no, we are not ultimately under the authority of law. We are under the authority of Jesus. And we take our cues from what Jesus says. Which is interesting then, because it's like, wait, well, what does Jesus say about the law? It seems here like he's saying, hey, you can't tell my disciples what to do. They are accountable to me, and I say it's okay for them to do that. Which makes us think, oh, Jesus must be like kind of a rule breaker or a rule bender or a rule, you know, he just doesn't care about that stuff. Isn't that, and that we talked about that last week. Isn't that what Jesus is like? He's like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you need to. I got your back. But Jesus isn't saying that. First of all, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the right to explain this law and to tell you and everyone what to do. But then he goes on to give them a new way of seeing all laws, including the Sabbath. Ultimately, he gives them a new question to ask. And the question isn't, what should you do? The question is, what does love require of you? <laughs> 
Not what should you do in this situation, in that situation. What should you do with this law or that? What does love require of you? And I'll explain in a moment where we get this from. But this was the question Jesus was asking over and over and over again. Why? Because the truth is all of God's laws, all of the laws were always about love. If you go back in Israel's history, even when the Ten Commandments appeared, you may not know this, even if you've never been in church before, whatever, you may have this idea of God as kind of the religious stickler giving us the laws and saying, this is what you need to do. And, and many of us maybe have thrown off religion, right, for that reason. We're like, that's why I left, man. That's why I left the church. It's all about the rules. But even the Ten Commandments we look at, this isn't Jesus rescuing us from God, the heavy rule, um, you know, rule stickler. The laws that God gave his people were actually not terms of a contract. They were vows in a love relationship, almost like vows in a marriage ceremony. If you go back in Israel's history, God had rescued them from Egypt, rescued them from 400 years of systemic slavery, where they were used up by, in a sense, a God king who said, you exist for my uh, pleasure, for my needs. I'm going to use you to get what I want. That was their generational situation for 400 years. And that's what um, the gods of Egypt did to them. And so God bringing them out of slavery is saying, no, I'm not a God who enslaves you. I rescue you. And he brings them out into the desert. And he says, okay, I have already shown you that I love you, that I'm for you, that, uh, that you belong to me and I belong to you. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments as their vows of love. It was a love ceremony saying, God, God saying, I have pledged my love to you. And so keep these laws. And listen, the laws that Israel were given were both for them to be able to receive love, also for them to be able to show love back to God, also for them to be able to love themselves and love other people. That's what the laws were for. And so Jesus, thousands of years later, when his, the religious leaders are saying, hey, you broke the law, he says, you know what the most important question is? It's not what should you do, but what does love require of you? And you guys have taken these laws and understandably, they, they hung on to them. They were trying to do good. They, they thought, hey, revolution's going to come. If we live properly and abide by all the rules, then God will be pleased with us and he will rescue us. And Jesus says, no, you have allowed these laws to become, uh, a, he said, even a burden. He said, you know what? Only so few of you can actually keep them. And the greater problem is it has actually kept you from seeing what the point of these things were in the first place. They were always about love. And here's how we know this. Because in two ways, he said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. It's okay for these disciples to eat grain. Why? Because they're, the Sabbath is a gift. Elsewhere, he said, human beings weren't made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift to them. Human beings, the Sabbath was given to humans. In other words, God says, the reason I want you to stop working, to not work, is so that you can rest is so that you can receive, you're not slaves, right? When they were slaves, there was no day of rest. The Sabbath was a gift to say, you don't need to, you're not defined by what you do. You can have a day where you don't do what you're supposed to do every day and you're still you. <laughs> and you can rest and receive my love. And it's a way of making you trust me to say, you know what? My ultimate hope and trust for people who were farmers and who raised cattle and worked the land, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. <laughs> He's saying, no, no, ultimately your faith and trust in where your food and shelter and clothing is going to come from is not your work, it's from me. The Sabbath was a gift for them to receive the love of God. And so he says, yes, of course my disciples can eat grain if they need it. The Sabbath is a gift. You've missed the whole point. This is about love. 
But then he says, this isn't just about you receiving the love of God. He goes on and says, I need you to learn something. What does this mean? And he quotes scripture and he says, from God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This idea of sacrifice, a lot of their laws were around, okay, these are the sacrifices you have to make. And Jesus says, you know what's more important than, than sacrifice, than law? Is love, mercy, compassion, and love. And so what happens? He goes on into the temple. The next scene, it says there was a man there with a shriveled arm, with an arm that had a palsy or something and didn't work. And again, the Pharisees are like, hey, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? That's work. And Jesus says, come on. If a sheep fell into a pit, one of your sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull it out? The rhetorical answer is yes, of course. Why? Because it's worth money to them. That was how they made their money. It was a part of their property. It's not because you loved, you know, Lammy the lamb. It fell in a pit. It's your money. He says, how much more important or valuable are people than your stuff, than your things. He was pointing out to them, here's this man who's got a shriveled arm and you don't even care about the fact that he's, that he's poor because of it, that his life has been so dramatically affected by it. By this is affecting him so All you're using him is as an object lesson to try to trap me. You don't care about people. Your laws have gotten in the way of love. And that's why he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And Jesus heals him. He says, don't you understand? I desire mercy, love, compassion. That's what any law, if it's good, is for, is to lead you into love. To which we go, yeah, love is so much better than law, right? Love is so much better than law. And it's true. But here's the thing. Love is both freeing and binding at the same time. Love is both freeing and binding at the same time. Is love freeing? Oh, yes, it is, right? And we go, oh, that's so much better than laws. You should do this, you should do that. Love, receive the love of God. You know, receive the love of God for yourself. Love God in return. That's so freeing. But love is binding too, isn't it? How do we know this? We'll just look at any healthy marriage relationship. Any of you that know people are married or you are married or you've been married, you know in its purest, most beautiful form, love in a marriage is both freeing and binding at the same time. Is it freeing? Of course it is. Is it freeing to know that someone loves you just the way you are? Is it free to know that someone has committed their life to love you and to make you better and to serve you and to care for you no matter what? Is it freeing to know that even though they see you warts and all, they're not going to leave you? They love you. They accept you as you are. Yes, that's so freeing. But is it binding? Yeah, for sure it is. Does it mean you have to restrict your freedom? For sure it does. If I say, okay, wait, wait, wait a second, let me just get this straight, like on my wedding day, okay? Wait, so you're going to love me in sickness and in health, no matter what. You're going to try to serve me and help me in my, my highs and lows. Yeah. Oh, you're going you're gonna to love me warts and all, even though you're going to know the most about me. And, and I'm probably going to hurt you more than I'm going to hurt everyone else because I'm closest to you, but you're still going to love me and forgive me. Yeah, and you're going to be faithfully committed to me no matter what? Great. So I can do whatever I want. <laughs> At that point, the minister's probably saying, wait, wait, I think you're missing the whole point of this love thing, right? That's the wrong question. 
oh, you mean I can be free to do whatever I want? No, if you, if you ask that, you've missed what love is. You've missed the binding part of love. Yes, the freedom of being loved exactly as you are, but what does that love do? It binds you to the other person in a similar love commitment. Friends, and this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you just live by the laws as a rule follower or a rule bender or a rule breaker, rule feeler, you will live your life ultimately becoming a very selfish and a very hardened person. Because this is what the rule says, and I always want to do with the rules, and that's how I am, and that's how I, you know, that's, it's about, or the rule, the rule benders, you know, well, yeah, we'll just try to work the situation, but that's what I, you know, that's who I am. I'm a righteous, upstanding person, and I always do what's right. Or if you're a real breaker, a real feeler, you'll basically say, well, you know what? These things don't apply to me and it'll make you a very selfish person. And Jesus says, no, I'm inviting you into a whole new way of making decisions, a revolutionary way of seeing the world. Don't just ask, oh, what should I do? Ask, what does love require of you? Friends, that revolutionizes the way we see all of our decisions. It is, a, it is a, a game-changing way for any of us, whether you are a rule follower or a rule bender or a rule breaker or a rule feeler. What does love require of me is a far more beautiful, a far more freeing, and a far more binding question. All right, let's go back to our little game. You know, what should you do? You're on a Google Classroom, your teacher's teaching, and your friends are saying, hey, let's play a game. And if you go, if you're like a rule bender or a rule follower or whatever, you're like, oh, God, this, is, this is what I should do. Or guys, I can't believe you're asking me to do that. That's wrong. You know, you could be like that as a rule follower. You could be like, well, yeah, no, I kind of know enough. And, or I don't care. That's if you're following the rules. What is Jesus' question? What does love require of you? Say, what does it mean to love my teacher? What does it mean to love my friends? and want what's best for them, and to honor my teacher, to honor the people who are in authority over me, to love them and respect them. That changes the way I view the question. When you think about the pain involved in declaring all of your income, knowing you're going to have to give some of it away, and you can argue whether you think the government's doing a good job or not with the taxes that you give, but what does it mean to love those in authority over you, to love the people that public education and public health there will actually help? How can it change how you think about it if you say, what does it mean to love? Asking what does love require is both freeing, saying, oh, okay, I don't have to live under the compulsion of these things that are, I find are so restrictive or can make me very judgmental or very selfish, but it's binding. It actually raises the standard far above law to what does love require? You know, I think one of the missing pieces in all of our discussions, I find, as Jesus follows about the pandemic, you know, we can expect and assume that the rest of the world is going to be angry or frustrated and debating and there's rule followers and rule benders and rule breakers and rule feelers about all this stuff. It's like, no, this is what the law says. This is what I have to do. And it's like, well, we can kind of adapt to our situation and like, I don't care what the government's saying, whatever. What I don't hear enough from all of us as Jesus followers, myself included, is saying, what does it mean to love well in this season. Friends, the law, we can say, oh, applies to everyone, but the law of love is a higher law that applies to all of us as Christians. Ultimately, that is what we are held accountable to. What does it mean to love? That is a game-changing question in every decision you'll have to make. And so what does that mean for us today? just as you kind of think about your own life, the first question I want to ask you is, where do you lean? 
Where do you lean? Are you a rule follower or a rule bender or a rule breaker or a rule feeler? Are you someone who's like, nope, we always do what's right. This is what we do. And that's, you know, or are you, uh, ah, we can kind of adapt the situation. Yeah, but every law has to be nuanced. And let's talk about the spirit versus the letter. Or it's saying, well, I don't care. I've, I've got it under control. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Or like, I just feel, I just got this in my gut, right? And we're all different. And there's, 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 there's good and bad things about all of it. But where do you lean? Just ask yourself that question. Maybe even how you've responded to the pandemic and the pandemic restrictions will give you an indication of where do you lean. And based on that question, where do you lean? Where might you be leaking love? Right? In your relationship with God. Right? Even that scenario of, oh, leaving the cottage to go to a prayer meeting. If you're like, oh, I should go. Yeah, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't like the sunshine and the outdoors more than. That's not the point. The point is, God's, what God invites you into, I might actually be able to grasp the love of God at that prayer meeting. I don't want to miss a chance to receive God's gifts to me. Or I want to show up in that place even though I don't like being online for my home group. I don't like being online for youth group. And yeah, we don't love being online compared to being in person. But what does love require of me to say, hey, maybe me showing up actually shows love to the other people who are coming or shows love to my leader or shows love to my home group leader. Say, hey, I'm with you guys. I'm in this. I don't love this. I've been online all day, but I love you guys. What does love require? And so where has love been leaking? Maybe in my relationship with God, where it's kind of more of a rule, regimented, routine-oriented relationship I have with him as opposed to love. Or maybe with other people where I haven't been actually thinking about the decisions I'm making in light of what does it mean to love them well. So where do you lean? Where might you be leaking love? Say, okay, well then what does love require of me in this decision or in this relationship? As we continue to think about that and contemplate, in a few moments we're going to take communion together. We're going to have a chance to break bread and uh, receive the cup as symbols of Jesus' answer to the question, what does love require of him? Jesus' answer to that question was, no greater love than this, than for one to lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> that was Jesus' answer. What does love require of me? My life. And friends, that is the one who is inviting us to follow him. It is the one who has first answered that question definitively by laying down his life. It is about receiving his love and also receiving his way of loving others. And so I want you to just reflect on this song that the band's going to lead us in as you prepare your own heart and your life to receive communion. And if you need to take a moment even during the song as you listen, just to confess and say, God, yeah, love has leaked out of my relationship with you because I've been so focused on the routines and the rules and what's right and I've actually forgot about that this is about love. Or, you know, love has leaked out of my life right now, maybe even in this season or in my school or the way I'm relating to my peers or my family or the people around me. I need to learn to love again. You can, just, you can confess and just ask him, the one who broke his life and gave it away for you to give you that kind of heart and love for others. Worthy of 
of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Sorry.